On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we welcome Sarah Seifer. Sarah has an MFA from the Program for Writers at Warren Wilson College, where she was a Rona Jaffe Fellow in in Fiction and a BA from Carnegie Mellon University. Her writing has appeared in the New Ohio Review and the North American Review, among others. The Skin and Its Girl is her debut novel, one I am personally and professionally thrilled to talk about. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Sarah. Thank you so much, Corinne. I'm overjoyed to be here and having this conversation. (laughs) Especially where we both are feels like some sort of star-crossed situation because you and I met a long time ago. First, I I approached you to edit my work and we found a date to do that. And in between, I think before I had even sent it to you, then we figured out we were both going to the Northern California writing retreat together, which was bizarre in and of itself. Right? right? Did I have that timing right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we worked together and I've been a freelance fiction editor for 20 years. I run my business mainly on the internet. I feel fortunate if I get to speak to a client on the phone because not every client wants to, but to meet in person and then no less up on a mountain on the other side of the continent <laughs> and this magical writing retreat. Yes. Oh, that's right. That's right. And we're, and you were on the West Coast then, but now you're back on the East Coast. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. My wife is in the Coast Guard and she's just finishing up her career and we'll move to Texas next spring and just start this new chapter of our lives. I'm really excited about it. Okay, great. Well, you have a lot of new chapters happening. So <laughs> I, right? So I read, we were actually in the same workshop group, mm-hmm. another kind of kismet moment at the Northern California Writing Retreat. What Was it 2018? I think it was, right? It, was no it was 2017 because I went a few months before I started my MFA okay and I think I even brought a chapter or two of this book in a much earlier incarnation to that workshop you did and I absolutely loved it I had the whole stack of them I read I had a six-hour flight and I had a printed out a whole stack and I read all of the submissions and yours just blew me away blew no pun intended. I mean, it really <laughs> left such a mark. I was like, I've never seen anything like this. But and the writing is so beautiful and visceral. I was just so taken. And I remember at that moment, you were maybe a little done with it for the moment or something. And I was like, where? Like, I want this published tomorrow. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I've been working on this. I don't know. Is, is that right? Where were you with it then? Yeah, I mean, I've this book has been in my life for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, I think I started some scenes with some of the characters, not, it must have been like 2004 or 2005 even, because I was thinking it was sort of in the years after 9-11 and I, you know, I had moved very far away from home and I was thinking a lot about identity and reading mm-hmm. a lot of magical realism like Garcia Marquez. And I wrote the scene where a blue baby was born and I didn't know what to do with it and I didn't know what it meant but I just kept it and it's funny to see like you can have these elements of a novel that feel mysteriously powerful you don't know why and you know that they're part of the story and I've written this novel around those elements so many different times so whenever I came to the Northern California Writers Retreat and we met I had 
rearranged it a number of times. I had already been through a journey with another novel that I had gotten an agent but didn't sell, so I was sort of at odds with what to do mm -hmm. with myself professionally. And I was trying to come back to this project, but I remember when we were there, I had compared it to this... I felt <laughs> like I knew how... I was trying to get from the ground floor to the first floor, and I knew how to build stairs, but I couldn't figure out how to connect like the top three stairs to the next floor. And right. I just felt like I yes. kept getting stuck in that gap. But, yes. you know, I, I, the MFA process was really helpful for me. Okay, so so all right, before we get there, tell mm -hmm. me about the idea. Because the blue baby, even I had read, I think, 20 pages, the, the birth where the baby's skin comes out and she's blue has been there for a very long time. But mm -hmm. this is clearly, there were even more elements in the first 20 pages of this book, even in that birth, that weren't there. So tell, tell me where this idea started for you and also the blue skin. Like where, where did that come from and, and how did you know to hold on to it? You knew that was the magic for you. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll just say for the purpose of the podcast. So The Skin and Its Girl, it's about this queer Palestinian American named Betty Rumani, and she's born with cobalt blue skin. And she's facing this really life changing decision, whether she's going to leave the country with a woman that she loves, or she's going to stay in the California Bay Area, the, the home that she's known and where she's been able to build a comfortable life for herself. But in the process of figuring out what she wants to do, she is kind of revisiting memories of her great aunt, Nuha, who helped raise her. And she was the matriarch and the family storyteller. And as she's revisiting those stories, she starts to discover some family secrets. So that's where I landed with the idea. And I think where this draft came from, like as part of the MFA process and also sort of investigating what mattered to me, yeah. was really about wearing different identities. I mean, I think mm. the title kind of gets to that, like the skin yeah. and its girl, kind of how, how our identities sometimes hold our agency for us and that there's some tension between that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the novel is very much about storytelling. I mean, there are multiple layers of narration and different sort of narratives that are happening in parallel within the novel. Yeah. And I think that that felt really true to my experience of living in that, we're all many things at once. And I've landed in this very happy place in my life. But for the most part, I've set up my life that I, I can be an introvert, I can, you know, work to my own rhythm, I've surfaced at times to create space and stability, like in being able to marry my wife, and, you know, to, to have a sort of relationship with my identity as an Arab American and as a queer woman, like that there have been times where I've like surface and negotiate what that meant to me. Yes. Uh, and, but nevertheless still feel like my life is my own and that I'm not trying to fit into one, one thing or the other because yeah. there's tension between them a lot of times. Yeah. And you've surrounded yourself with these people that know and love you and accept you and understand all of the complexity and don't ask you about it. Even you know, just cur out of curiosity. And then certainly there's there's far worse things that come from a place of not curiosity, it's come from a place of disdain or, or what you know, negative thoughts. So, mm -hmm. but then you have to kind of surface and, and manage those. But we like to, you know, speaking as a fellow introvert, we like to keep those few and far between. And it's funny that I get a lot of that now, the podcast, like I'm so out there. 
And yet I'm like, I'm just sitting on a screen talking to one person. This is, I don't feel out there in any way, shape or form, but, but yeah. So uh, let's talk about Betty. Mm-hmm. because the the focus of this podcast is complicated women and she has so many dimensions to her character to her character alone and then her situation is further complexity so tell us about betty what inspired her how you developed her or any challenges that you faced when mm-hmm. writing her yeah that's so that's really great i mean and also in so your, your previous question too that i yeah. don't know if i answer like her blueness. Yes. I mean, in trying to decide what that was, I I feel like I settled on it being kind of a zone of meaning and that, that there was never any one specific thing or one specific identity. So in terms of her like complexity and sort of, you know, what what she's dealt with a character and like what I've dealt with in trying to write her character is to create that space for her. And, and not try to define it too much. So, you know, the other characters in the novel often try to define what it means for them. Her family sees it as a connection to their ancestral soap factory in mm-hmm. the West Bank. Her father, who has this very kind of formal Western education in, in medicine and law, wants to define it scientifically. Her mother has always kind of dealt with mental illness in, in you know, sometimes worse than other times. But in a lot of ways, she's the one person who understands that it's best to not try to tell someone who they are or who they should be. And that's sort of one of the more subtle relationships in the book that it took me a while to figure that out. But in writing Betty, and she's the narrator, and and I think in giving her that power to be the voice that, that tells all of these stories, all of these multi-layered stories, was a way for me to finally give her the agency that she wanted as a, mm-hmm. a main character. Because it's not enough that, oh, hey, she's blue. Okay, so what? <laughs> like, what right. next? Yeah. You know, that, that... It's a great hook. It's a great, mm-hmm. you know, but you're right. There's got to, what's her, what's her story? What's her journey? Yeah. Yeah. And like for some of the people around her, that's a crisis or that's a problem to solve. Yeah. But it's not an identity and I wanted it to be and kind of remain an open question throughout the story mm-hmm. so that it, it, it holds a lot of the storytelling, but it isn't an answer in and of itself. And I think that was an uncomfortable place or an uncomfortable lesson for me to learn or a difficult lesson, yeah. like how to not define something because there's so much in the story that is defined. I mean, you know, there's a historical narrative and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, encounters that she has with, the scientific and medical establishments that yeah. that I wanted to get right. And, you know, certainly her cultural identity and ethnic background, I wanted to get right insofar as they were sort of different from my own as a second generation Lebanese American. Right. You know, my family sort of, they migrated at a, a different time than Betty's family. So there were a lot of sort of matters of fact and, and, and history that I wanted to get right. But at the center of it. And I think this is what is so beautiful about fiction is that there are spaces that we like, that, that we want to feel are always an open window and, and not something that yeah. gets tied up neatly at the end. Yes. And you really balanced having that open-endedness with, I just, I felt so held throughout this whole book. And I don't know if it's, I, I, I think a lot of it is your skin imagery and like kind of the shell there's just something I felt 
kind of wrapped up in in the story. And I don't know, it's, it worked for me. So I want to talk about Betty's aunt, Nuha, is that? Nuha, yes. Nuha, okay. I, I'd like to read just very early on. Betty says, you, the formidable Nuha Rumani, stood at the cart looking down at me, where my mother and grandmother saw danger. You, auntie, saw possibility. It's a beautiful line. And it just informs the journey that Betty will be going on, that she had this person kind of in her in her corner in a way that other people weren't. And not for lack of, you know, it's not a lack of love. It's danger, fear, all of these things that, that influence w- what to do with Betty. But I wanted to talk about Auntie Nuha, what inspired her and how did she become part of this story? Because I, I don't think she was when I first read, but again, it was so short and yeah. Yeah, I'm chuckling because she insisted on being in the story. Oh, I love um, that. She was peripheral in a much earlier draft and I felt like I I wasn't sure how to to use her as a character so I, I attempted to sideline or she would be a, a relative that would come in and visit and leave and I don't often have the experience of a character showing up kind of fully formed with their personality yeah. <laughs> but but Nuha did won't for leave sure. you alone yeah, yeah like she bullied yeah. her way I think arguably to the center of this story yeah. I Betty is the storyteller but yes. that's something that she learned from Nuha. And I think yes. that was a lot of what Nuha modeled for her. I mean, when the story begins, Nuha is almost 80 years old. She has, has lived her whole life, and I don't want to give any spoilers away, yeah. but she's yeah. she's played this role as the matriarch in you know, a Palestinian, Palestinian family whose, whose livelihood was disrupted. And, you know, they, they emigrated to the United States and tried to renegotiate their identity kind of against this historical current. Nuha held the the power of sort of the next generation or the next generations by being their storyteller. Mm-hmm. That kind of in the aftermath of, of sort of the national disruption of the Nakba, she really helped, I mean, obviously in a very pragmatic way with, you know, when you've got a lot going on, who takes care of the kids? Yeah, but yeah. she she did that by being an entertainer and by being a storyteller. And you know, certainly I was influenced by traditional Arabic folk telling, folk folk tales as well, with sort of the use of repetition and this kind of clever characters and uh, just a lot of wonderful flourishes that 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 held my attention. Yeah, and yeah. if she knows how to use that power to create space and to to demand attention. And also, I think she fulfills this really interesting role of the auntie. I mean, I was just watching this this TED talk with he, he's, they're a scholar, Kareem Kupchundani, and also a drag queen. And you know, they're, they're this pioneer in in the critical auntie studies. <laughs> like, okay. what is an auntie in in the culture? Is like someone who takes up space, someone who has these sort of non traditional modes of knowing things and uses it through gossip and and kind of serves as a mentor in sort of untraditional spaces. So Nuha was very much a queer mentor to Betty. And in having fulfilled this role in the family, when she sees Betty and, you know, her, her skin and sort of her unnatural, like stone-like density, she, she instinctively knows that here is someone who's going to potentially have a hard time growing up. Everyone else sees danger in it. 
but this is someone who, like me, can create kind of their own path in life. And to do that, she needs to have the power of her voice and and to understand how to make meaning whenever people want to make it for you. For you, um, yeah. I love, there's so many beautiful lines in this book, so many, but I just making, that makes me think of one, hiding one's true desires day in and day out was a type of skin. And I think that's what she's teaching. It's if you don't decide for yourself, then someone else will put that on you. I mean, she didn't choose blue skin. This is how she was born in it. And everyone else will decide for you if you don't, you know, let it come from within. I want to zoom out. You've talked about identity a few times and talk about this novel on a kind of a macro level. What did writing this novel bring up for you? And, and what was it as a process for you as, and I'm, curious obviously if what you were exploring with identity because you've said it so many times already and it just the novel revolves around it on on every level on a skin surface level on a deep relationship level a family level so many so I wanted to know yeah yeah and I mean I think identity is one of those words that we throw around a lot and you know what does it really mean and I wouldn't say that it's something that I thought of you know under that label for a long time but I grew up in an Arab American family in a small working class town in Western Pennsylvania. And, you know, in, in the nineties, like there was just a lot of scaremongering around sexuality. And I didn't really have a model for knowing why I did not feel like I fit in there, or I didn't really see a future for myself there, but wasn't sure what a different future would look like. So you know, after I, I finished studying creative writing, I moved to, to Portland, Oregon. And that space, along with everything that was kind of happening in the world at the time, post 9-11, I, it was really the first time in my life that I got to figure out how to create a space for myself. I mean, some of that was economic and starting my freelance editing yeah. business, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously like romantically and exploring relationships with women and just feeling like for the first time that who you love lines up with who you want to spend your time with and that that might actually be something that that turns into a future like to sort of be able to see the future for the first time and you know that that has been a process that's been ongoing my entire life you know my relationship to what is marriage as an institution and like being able to legally get married you know when I met you know my now wife you know, she could have lost her job in the military because of our relationship. So, you know, where we began with only holding hands in a dark street or me having an alias Gmail account so I could write to her under a man's name whenever she was at work to say, hey, how are you doing? How's your day? I love you. Like all the other things that you might say to to a partner. To being able to get married and, you know, just to where we are now where we just have a life like anybody else. That, That finding a space to be you know, a woman who's married to a woman to be a creator. I mean, I think there is something queer about being a creative person in our super capitalist culture, you know, in all of its messaging about productivity and and what does, Uh, you know, what does work look like? Output, Um, yes. What are you producing? What are you handing in today? Nothing. Yeah, like what is a peer? What is a colleague? What what does it mean to be professional? You know, I think there are really simplistic answers to that that don't often line up with, 
you know, the work that we do as creators. And I think it's really essential work. I mean, storytelling is a human behavior. And I think that there's something absolutely vital in the role that we play in, in being able to get people to imagine futures, good futures, and, you know, a different way of being as a culture that, you know, maybe places less stress on the planet, you know, more peaceful ways of being, whatever idealistic <laughs> vision that you have. And I'm like the biggest idealist and also yeah. the biggest cynic. Yes. <laughs> there's, there's a tension there. But, yeah. you know, to answer your question more directly, like what what was this book for me as a process? I mean, I was reading a lot of queer literature in a very intentional way alongside kind of the scholarly work on what is queerness, what are queer studies. You know, I, I like having that kind of almost academic layer <laughs> to, to, to my creative yeah. process as well, yeah. because I, I think that, that there is, I mean, <laughs> academic ease gets a, a really bad rap for being unreadable, but I mean, there's a density in communicate communicativity to 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 those kind of like literary inquiries that helps me think through what I'm trying to do uh, because I always start out with a sense of what a project is but I have to build around that who are the characters what is the plot what is the voice for this I mean I feel like a lot of my writing happens from the inside out yeah. so you know the process of writing this for me was just being able to really fully own the identity as a queer person and even as an Arab American. I mean, that's almost yeah. a, kind of another label that is so big that it's almost meaningless. Yes, um, yes. And do you think, and in that way, do you think the timing, I know you started, you know, you, you had some iteration of this back in, you were saying 2004, 2005, but I, I mean, as, as, I don't know, as normalized as it is to be in love with a woman in some areas, in some, you know, whatever, it's not, it, you're still creating a Gmail account. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a tension that must be hard to reconcile. Maybe even harder as it is more accepting in some areas and then still not in others. And then do you For think sure. the timing of, of being able to legally get married and have all of these kind of basic rights bestowed long beyond you know when they should have been that you could then explore it in a whole different way yeah absolutely I mean I don't think this book even would have gotten published 10 years ago and I mean I think there's also yeah. something to be said like who who is creating the project and how confident are they and I don't think I had the confidence to write this book the way it ultimately came out 10 years ago either. Sure, sure. You know, there's something to be said for giving giving a project the space that it needs. And especially, I don't feel like I'm doing my job as a writer unless it it's somehow, the project is somehow hot to the touch and very close. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, yeah. there's got to be some level of personal investigation so that, you know, I it matters. And so that I, I feel like I'm using my craft in you know, its fullest sense, like exploring both myself and the language that I, I'm, you know, trying to invent for a story and, and like, what is that imaginative space for the reader too. Yeah. But I mean, there are still plenty of places where yes. I, I'm not I comfortable being out. Like when I went to Nablus in the West Bank to do my research, I mean, it, I, I felt a lot of tension around, you know, being in the West Bank and not being able to talk to my wife, but also you know, wanting to be a respectful traveler and knowing that I'm there, you know, I, 
you know, I'm a woman, a cis woman, and I'm also an athlete. And, you know, <laughs> I was there in a beautiful time of year. I wanted nothing more than put a tank top and shorts and go run up some, run, you know, yeah. beautiful hill outside of the city of Nablus and just kind of see the landscape. That is not something that, that you would do as, you know, especially as a visitor. But then, you know, in going to Tel Aviv and kind of preparing to end the trip, like it's like very acceptable to go running on the beach in like tank top and shorts or whatever. Yeah. But also, and to be out. But mm. that there, you know, traveling in a space like that just reminded me that we have certain freedoms on one side of the border and others on another side. And that those borders are not just necessarily national borders elsewhere yes. in the world, but, you know, whether we're going from the city to a rural area. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think the town where I grew up has come quite a long way culturally. I mean, where there used to be a florist, now there's a coffee shop with an inclusive pride flag on the door. I mean, you never would have seen that in, like, 1995. Right. Right. But I, I, I'm just... I'm so thrilled that this book came to be when it did. And I think there's also a cultural moment that happened in the publishing industry as well. You know, the, the author Matthew Salas wrote this wonderful craft book, craft in the real world that my agent or would be agent happened to be reading at the time that my book came in on submission. And it allowed him to see that although it's not this conventional narrative, there is a different kind of control and narrative authority happening on the page that just doesn't look like what what you know agents sort of in the mainstream mm-hmm. publishing industry are used to seeing. Yeah. You know, and my editor and my publishing team are certainly you know there's just a diversity there that is not yet reflected in the larger publishing industry, and I think that has just I don't know. It's made me feel very at home and feel you know, very taken care of and and very, you know, that this novel is respected by people who understand that there's not just one story, (laughs) that they're not just trying to duplicate it into, you know, a a product. Yeah. I, you are just making me think of, and now I know that this is repeated later. Well, so I want to ask you, okay, there's a line later in the book, so I won't give context to it, but I want to talk about what you mean by it. You can be anyone in chaos. And later it's repeated, you can be anyone in chaos. And the tricky thing is, the closer you look at life, the more chaotic it is. I feel Mm -hmm. like, is that what you're talking about when you're talking about these borders and how, you know, you can move, travel a few hours and it's a different, you know, set of standards or set of rules. And then, and also within ourselves and how there's a tension between the outside and the inside. And even inside ourselves, there's a tension. Or, Or did you mean what... I, I I was very curious. That line struck me, and I loved the repetition of it and the adding on to it. And I'm like, gosh, I this had me thinking. <laughs> I'm I'm really happy to hear that. And I and the novel uses a lot of repetition and variation. Love I it. mean, to give a, a tiny bit of context, I mean that 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 line happened during the Nakba, you know, with the the founding of the state of Israel that had consequence for a lot of, you know, traditionally Palestinian or formerly Ottoman empire villages were depopulated. And there was a, a, a change that affected, you know, almost a million people. I mean, it kind of led to the Palestinian diaspora. But in the chaos of that, and the the sort of meaning making around a new social, economic and political dynamic, this family that traditionally 
made soap and you know had a very comfortable existence that that their concerns were suddenly able to disguise a lot of other a lot of other shenanigans happening with some of the particular family members which I won't go into yes, um, but yes. this is a novel that's very much interested in like the kinds of meaning that we make in the aftermath so when yeah. Betty is born her mother has found that her, her father cheated on her they're divorced so Betty is kind of born in, into this this sort of domestic chaos as well yeah. there's a family feud that goes back decades but I'm really interested in you know that question, what next or what mm. now? Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, on an individual level, like we always or often have chaos in our lives. Yes. I mean, and, I think our yeah. whole, for, for many people, their whole lives are structuring to keep it out or to ignore it or to put blinders mm-hmm. on. But it is just, it's a lot of chaos. Yeah, humans, and I mean, humans, their emotions that you have to interact with other humans and other emotions. I mean, it's truly chaos. Yeah, I know. Or I mean, the, the universe, if you get, get down yeah. the smallest particles, like, the, there's always, uh, the, I mean, oh, we're, yeah. we're just a stack of collisions. Um, Absolutely. And, I mean, it's easy to frame that very negatively. And I, I think, you know, I've gone through a lot of crises. I mean, I think any queer person who, you know, who's come out to their family is like that, that feels like a crisis or, you know, falling in love can be a crisis, even though it's a good thing. Absolutely. Um, But, you know, when we, we come through those and we're answering that question, what now or what next, you know, it has to end up feeling meaningful and, and ideally positive. And that, that chance that, we, we can be anyone, that we do get to decide to some extent, you know, how, what meaning our lives have and what meaning our, our labors and our care and our, you know, our, our visions of the future can have it in the context of, of our immediate and our immediate communities. You know, I, I, I think that people like to do that before they like process everything. It just like, I decide, I, you know, I can decide what this is, but if you don't kind of go through it first and you just decide, you're really cutting off a whole part of yourself, your growth, your potential. And if you embrace it all, the good and the bad and call it each, then you, when you come out on the other end, then you really do get to choose. But I do think that's where some of this toxic positivity, which we were kind of joking about before we started recording, comes from. Is like, I can just decide that didn't hurt me. I can just decide. And you have to decide after you've processed things. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't really shortcut it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I mean there's also like something good happens and, and, you know, you're expected to have one simple kind of monodimensional good feeling about it but we are emotional beings life. and it's not life um no and you know i i like to give opportunities to people to surprise me and mm. you know maybe, maybe not intentionally but i mean when you go through something big you know people will dis- some people that you expect will be there for you disappoint you but then there are some people who really step up yeah. you know it's yeah. like that that adage tell someone no and and see how they respond and that mm. <laughs> says a lot about the relationship okay um, that yeah. it's the i think 
in, in trying to set boundaries, you know, whether they're, it's, you know, professionally kind of as someone who has an internet business and nobody can actually see whether I'm like sitting at my desk or, you know, working kind of weird hours or whatever, or I just trying to not take on more work than, you know, my, my brain and my heart can handle, you know, I've had to set a lot of boundaries, especially having a book come out like that. There is a lot of work that happens and, you know, what that work looks like is not typically what I'm used to work being like, Hey, just, yeah. just sit and write this fun article or like, yeah. here's a bunch of emails or like, or think a lot about yeah. what, about this book and think about how you want to talk about it and all of these yes. ideas that maybe no one would have ever asked you, but now your book is coming out and they will definitely ask you. I know. It seems like it ought to be easy. Talk about this thing you made. And it's, really Oh my not. gosh. It's really not. I'm just starting. I've realized I'm going to be the worst podcast guest ever because all my answers are, I don't know, somewhere deep in my subconscious this all came from. I mean, it is, yeah, it's pretty wild. Look, um, just I, start on your phone a little, just yes. notes now, like yes. talking points or things that come up. I'm just, I, thank you. You've already given me that gift to start okay. doing that because I am, because I, the farther away I get, even I'm starting to like, I, you just realize how things have to become a narrative like I was at a conference this weekend and someone was like how did you get your agent and I told this story and it's literally coming out of my mouth and I'm like this sounds ridiculous this isn't even true (laughs) but it was true but it didn't feel true to me because the way I said it was very plain we were literally standing in line for an author to get our book signed and I wasn't going to tell her my whole life story so I told her I answered her question but I was like this quest this answer is not really real (laughs) I I kind of intimated that but it's a lot but I want to talk about your path to publication because it is not it is actually pretty eerily similar to mine in a lot of ways and in to me the most amazing ways because I kind of felt sometimes first of all if you're not subscribe to Sarah's Substack. You should do so immediately. So you're such a generous writer and a beautiful writer. You've always been a beautiful writer. Your sentences just transport me. And I'm just reading about like getting an agent or <laughs> why I'm transported by your sentences, but just the way you write. But I want to talk about your path to publication. And I'm not going to start just with this book because it has been a long process for you, a long journey on this, you know, heading towards publication. And I want to let you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, (laughs) I just gave a talk last week to high schoolers. I was calling this kind of tongue in cheek on my substack, Face Your Fears Spring. (laughs) like going back into a high school to talk about being a writer as a viable career path. It just, it felt strange and uncomfortable, but exciting on a lot of Mm -hmm. levels. Like here's a room full of people that, you know, at at my age, when I was, when I was that age, I did not think that, that writing could be a career path, but I got into it because I had been a graphic artist, but I had this massive crush, massive celebrity crush. And I thought the only way I could ever meet this person would be on a talk show if I was able to get published as a teenager, that that might be news. (laughs) (laughs) But I, 
you know, in the process of, of writing this really bad story longhand in a pink spiral bound notebook, mm-hmm. I started to be invested in the quality of what I was writing. And this ended up being a project that I, you know, no matter how late I was awake the night before, like in college, I would wake up at 7am to work on this fantasy novel. And obviously, by this point, the crush had fallen away and been replaced by seven other crushes in the meantime. Right. Um, yeah. But the writing remains. But the writing remains. And I started taking workshops and you know, writing workshops in the late 90s were pretty canonical mm. um, in, in terms of realist fiction. And I happened to read on my own The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. Mm. And, you know, genre was just starting to be talked about as something that maybe might possibly have a glimmer of a, a literary quality. But at that point in her career, Ursula Le Guin had already written, you know, 20 books and, you know, she would go on to get all of these, like, you know, Society of Arts and Letters, like institutional honors. But I saw in this novel that you could write a story that was fun to read and interesting to read, but also structurally really genius. So there's a motif of a circle and a line that, that, plays out in that particular story but she manages to enact that in the shape of the narrative as well mm. and I think that's what I really wanted to do as a writer is to, to tell a story that was interesting to read you know on a superficial level if you're not engaged in right. you know you know Palestinian diasporic stories yeah. or if you're not really interested in storytelling itself or like so the, the biblical motif that I brought in and the skin and its girl like I still want this to be a story about this interesting family that that has some humor and has like warm family notes in it as well. Yeah. But to figure out how to do that in my own voice with my own interests, you know, I mentioned like this novel wouldn't have gotten published 10 years ago because I don't think I was confident enough to write the novel that it deserved to be 10 years ago. So, you know, I, I've been writing about, you know, kind of Arab diasporic issues in this sort of genre like a, a light literary genre blend for a long time. So I'd, I had had another manuscript that found an agent, but we weren't able to sell it. And the contract was just for that book. So after it failed to sell, I just, you know, that word fail was really big mm. in my life for several years. And I hadn't had a lot published. I mean, I'd had an excerpt of The Skin and Its Girl in an earlier form published in the Crab Orchard Review that felt like a validation when I needed it. Yeah, but yeah. I had, had some essays published, but not really a lot. And I think that's when I started to look at going back to an MFA program. Like a lot of my classmates from undergrad went on directly to MFA programs. And I just didn't feel like that was the right path. But whenever I came back to it, I had been a writer in the wild for 15 years. Yeah. And I just, it helps to be in the right program with the right mentors and I felt like Warren Wilson was really good for me. It's a low residency program. To a large extent, you set your own reading lists and you define your own questions and your own project, but there's still an academic rigor to it. And being able to investigate craft on mm. that rigorous level alongside reading what I wanted to read yeah. with with a critical lens that you know was really honed in the process, it helped me articulate what I wanted this novel to be. Yeah. And and really stand behind every decision that I made in it. I think that was really important to me whenever I was going on submission again, is just to say, hey, I'm open to changing something if it's not working, but I can't change what this project wants to be. Right, right. Yeah, and to some extent, 
the confidence to stand behind it, but it's also that process of the subconscious coming a little bit more conscious. Like these are the decisions I have made. And this is, it can be, there are a lot of things that can change, but there are, there are lots of things that just can't. And that is, I know you're right. Identity is kind of a buzzword, but I, and I see it as a fluid thing, but also not. It's so, you know, there are some things that just cannot be changed. And I almost think those are the things that can't really be named. Like Mm -hmm. they're hard, harder to name. And then there are things about one that you can change and knowing the differences is always tricky. But I mean, that's, that's the process of life and Mm -hmm. it's slippery, but it's meaningful. It's all I, that's all I ever do. It's all the work I'm doing. (laughs) So, so, so then you, out of your MFA program, you had a complete manuscript for this? I, I had a nearly complete manuscript. So the MFA program was four semesters, but I took a semester off because I had gotten a grant to, to go to the West Bank and research the traditional soap making industry in Nablus and, and walk around, which was a, a mind blowing experience on its mm. own because I found a a family connection that I wasn't expecting when I did that. <gasps> well, my mother's maiden name is Canaan, and it's a really common surname everywhere in in that region of the world. But I and I knew that there was a Canaan soap factory. But whenever I was wandering around the old city, you know, and I saw it, it had been bombed but rebuilt and turned into this cultural center. And I went in and I talked to them a little bit, and then I did some research on my own. And the best I could discover was that. 200 years ago, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. there was a blood feud between brothers, uh-huh. and a few of the the family went north to the, the village where my mom's family is from, Busbina, Lebanon. And th- that was, you know, I, I'm, if you're writing about queer history, you, ha- you get comfortable with coming up against the boundaries of, un- un- you know, there's no information or it's unknowable. Yeah. And right. I don't speak enough Arabic to like really go and do serious genealogy yeah. in the language. But, you know, I-, I think there might be a connection there anyway. I mean, it, it- it's a-, a really dense part of the world. Mm. Uh, but I-, I just, I found that family connection and I completely lost the train yeah, of this no, question. No. I'm sorry. So, no, the MFA, when you were out of the MFA, yes. you took a semester off. Yes, yes, yes. Then, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I took that semester off because I had gotten the grant to do the research. So I, I wrote a little bit more than half of the manuscript on that semester off. And I came back and I wrote most of the rest of it. Oh, wow. But then when I graduated, I graduated in January, 2020. Oh, <laughs> finished it. Yeah. I have the date on the folder. I finished it on March 8th, 2020. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and I spent oh, the rest gosh. of that terrible year with a manuscript on submission. And I mean, I think it, it gave me a, a little bit more leeway to follow up with, agents that didn't write back. I mean, I know you're supposed to treat that as a no. And normally yeah. I would just, I would have just yeah, treated it as a no and it, not followed up, but I just but I it pestered a little bit. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it got me enough feedback that I realized, okay, I don't need to change the core of this project, but I do need to make it easier for agents to see that, that this isn't, that what they're expecting isn't here. And to, to prime them for what was right. there. Right. So I made a revision. It was kind of like a middle of the night re- revelation that I typically, mm. I, I don't think that way. I don't wake up with, <laughs> with complete <laughs> brilliant answers. I wish yes. that was the case yeah. all the time. But I had the, the revelation that 
if this novel is addressed to Aunt Nuha mm-hmm. at her gravesite, to give it a specific point in time in the telling, that it might make it a little bit clearer. So after that revision, I sent it to my agent, and he got back to me within 10 days and offered representation. And Ugh. we did some revisions, and it went on submission the following summer. And he managed that process so well yeah. that we, we had a couple of offers for it, and it was really exciting. <laughs> I know. And were you nervous? I mean, I was – like so I, I similarly had a few years ago a book go on submission, didn't sell, wasn't the right book, the right time, who knows – and I spent many years kind of underground, a little bit more underground, because, I mean, I didn't feel like I was really wallowing in the failure, but I guess I was, or maybe I just wasn't ready, whatever it is. But when I was had another agent and was out on submission again, I was incredibly paralyzed by fear that the same thing would happen. And... You know, a lot of people, I didn't share a lot of news because I, how do you explain to someone what any of that feels like and what, what should be a really exciting time is incredibly racked with, you know, am I making the same mistake? Like, can I recover from this again? Can I do Mm -hmm. this? And what, if I can't, what is, what are my choices? And did you feel any of that? For sure. I was prepared for bad news. I, I just, <laughs> I, I'd gotten enough bad news in my life that I maybe to expect it too much. It Whenever I had good news with the novel, it took a really long time to sink in. I think because of this, this is sort of emotional callous there. Yeah. But I, I mean, I had the philosophy that if this all goes awry again, I can survive it because I've survived it before. But I really don't think I can survive the self-recrimination for regrets mm-hmm. that I'd had around, you know, communication and you know other other problems that I felt were not so much about the novel that mm. had been out of submission before. So this time, I just wanted to be very intentional about getting feedback from my community, being able to articulate what I wanted out of the the experience, you know, talking about problems that you know I was af- afraid of, like you know. It, Oftentimes, you know, we we do have fears as writers, and it's just helpful to just have that conversation on the phone and not be, you know, overthinking an email that you got or didn't get. Sometimes email's not great. But I think what also happened that helped was my wife and I adopted a puppy (laughs) at about the time that my novel went on submission. And we also had a geriatric dog, and she was traveling a lot for work. So, I mean, I was kind of coming apart at the seams with no sleep and like training a puppy and like carrying this ancient dachshund our dear bailey around with he's deaf and blind and senile and everything else there was just so much happening with taking care of these little beings in our house that a week could go by without me worrying about it too much and i think that was really important and a well-placed distraction is yes. a, is a great thing, you know. That is when you need a distraction because there's nothing you can do. Your agent's out on submission. It's for yeah. them. It's for them now. And it makes me appreciate like how how real our limitations as humans oh, are. Boy. Like that, like you have a really this. strong emotion. Like wait twenty minutes. Like distract yes. yourself for twenty minutes, and it vanishes or it changes. And I mean, we think that we're these. 
yes. incredibly advanced beings. And yes, I'm talking to you on these noise canceling headphones yeah. over this wonderful technology. But at right. the same time, like everything that we think is human is just this superficial layer of gray matter over the rest of this brain that is just pure animal. Like, yeah. We're not that special, I don't it's think, so fundamentally. True. It's so true. And it's scary for a lot of people. I think it's a lo- it's hard for a lot of people to accept that because you know, if you kind of swing in the other extreme, like what, what do I control? What can I do? And, you know, you can become nihilistic in that way. But, but it is a, a great thing to appreciate when you, in a moment like being on submission, when you really just can't, and you're so right, give it 20 minutes. <laughs> I, it has never ceased to like fail me either yeah. even if I, I just get to the truer version of what I want to say or what I'm really mm-hmm. feeling or maybe even this is a huge realization for me maybe I need to say exactly what I was thinking but to someone else right <laughs> not to that person maybe you know I need to share it with my husband or whatever or a friend as opposed to the person who I'm in it with and then have mm-hmm. a different conversation one that's already had a layer of processing from someone else where my raw animal, you know, <laughs> emotions are discharged and then we can actually engage and connect. But yes, yeah. it's hard. It's hard. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, like we're trying to make beautiful, thoughtful, brilliant things, but we're also animals. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Just like yes. holding I that dichotomy. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why I feel even more urgently that I need to do that is because that's all we are. <laughs> and, and my novel is full of people doing terrible primal animal things that had you had, you know, a little time and space you would not be doing. But I, that's like, that's all we all, that's all we all are. And I, you know, I like to think it's some sort of puppet master or whatever it is, but really it's just my imagination and life. And they give us good models too. Like when I when we're done with this interview and I go upstairs, I'm ninety nine percent sure that my cat is going to be stretched oh out gosh. on the pillow in the sun in the bay. In window. the one, I was going to say, <laughs> so we're like, the it's, one okay spot of sun. Yes. it's okay oh to rest. It's okay to rest. They are amazing models. Yes. Uh, so I want to talk about because I've heard so much. Now you gave me a little hint ahead ahead of time of your astrological sign, but I'm hearing <laughs> Scorpio all over this interview. <laughs> Yes, you are 100% right. And my, my undergraduate advisor, who is still a good friend of mine, she advised my thesis, but she also did my natal chart oh my <laughs> for God. me or, or my, my, my whole chart. Yes, um, yes. My, and, and we discovered that I am a Scorpio sun sign, a Virgo rising and a Scorpio moon sign. Oh my gosh, your sun and moon <laughs> is the same. Oh, so wow. what you see is what you get, I guess. But yes. then the Virgo helps me stay organized and be an editor and I don't know, yes. be kind of obsessed with Yeah, although the Scorpio helps with that too. Uh, that's Those are a lot of Scorpios things too, though. So you've yeah. got a lot of reinforcements. <laughs> yes. And I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm the, the, the I'm always the fascinated. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by people whose sun and moon are the same. My co-host Kate is sun and moon the same. And my okay. sun and moon are are like a toddler 
and an 80 year old man like i have <laughs> i have an Air, aries rise aries sun and capricorn moon and capricorn is so structured and disciplined and grounded and aries is free spirit just do it whatever and i mean it's i have this constant fight among myself among my sun and moon where like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, daytime, you know, whatever, <laughs> nighttime, I'm someone different. It is a constant struggle for me. So I'm always fascinated by that. But but yeah, the chart is so much more complicated even than those. But the big three are always a good a good indication of, of what's going on there. And no wonder I heard a lot of I heard a lot of Scorpio in this interview. <laughs> yeah, I can't hide it if I wanted it. To, no, if I exactly. To. <laughs> well, you don't want to. It's I uh, don't. <laughs> no, but but yeah, you're but you're right. It's it's written all over you. Uh, I want to end this interview with what you're loving right now. Anything that you want to share? Sure. Recommendations on books, TV, whatever you're into. Right. So I just heard on one of your previous episodes that Rebecca Mackay was watching you, and I think everybody is watching you. We just finished it last night, yes. but you know. My wife travels so much for work that I kind of put all of the streaming shows on pause until she comes back and we can watch it together. Yeah. And I, I'm very good about doing what I quote unquote should do whenever my time is completely my own. So I've been reading, I've been reading a lot. I mean, if when you have a book coming out and you have events with people, I mean, I just feel like it's a nice thing to make sure that I've read the books by the, the people that I'm in conversation with if I haven't already. Yes. But one of the things I was reading for fun was Patricia Engel's Infinite Country. I had gone to see her read from her new collection locally, and I just wanted to start with one of her novels. So this beautiful novel. I love how she writes about time and immigration through the lens of a family, but also incorporates a lot of kind of indigenous mythology from Colombia. That I, she's, that's a gorgeous novel. I really enjoyed reading Leila Leilami's Moore's Account. It came out several years ago, but it's about yeah. uh, the first African in the New World. He came with the conquistadors, and this was, you know, Lelami writes this through his voice and kind of giving him the agency of, of mm. telling that story. I love that. And so I love that. I also, in terms of debuts and, and kind of really recent stuff, I read Marissa Crane's I Keep My Exoskeletons to Myself, oh. which was a kind of a, a really sobering, but fun novel about people who, who are committed who who are accused of crimes have to ha have an extra shadow and that this ends up forming kind of a a subclass of people that really parallels sort of our carceral state and and sort of our othering of, of you know trans and and queer people in our society and you know obviously we see some of that scarily come true in the news headlines as well oh, yeah. i'm but, writing that but, one down that, that sounds good yeah. Yeah, it's a great title too. Yes. That just came out a couple of months ago and, and uh, they have a great new voice. So I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. The, the skin and its girl and this cover, I, I can't wait for my, I saw your pictures of the, the hard copy. I can't wait to get the full one because this one has like the white and the yeah. Does that one have the art in it, the family tree, like the actual no. family tree that's a pomegranate tree? Let me no. See. I can't wait till my copy comes on right. Tuesday. I know. I can't believe it's a week either. Yes. I, you know, I need to get more familiar with what page things are on, but let me find one of these. Uh, where are you? 
So it's it's a pomegranate tree, and it starts very simple in the beginning of the book. But as the family grows, the tree grows, and there are more fruits that hang on the branches. Oh, um, I love that. Oh, here's one. Oh, my gosh, that's beautiful. Oh, yeah. I don't have so that. My, my, my editor and the art team was very patient they're amazing and they're also very patient with my can we please make this look like a real tree and i have this wacky idea please go with me on it i love that Um, oh i love that the cover is gorgeous and i love i'm really happy with it yes Yes. i mean i I hope you get say in your cover and i hope they invite you to submit ones that you like and that was a really fun part of the process oh good 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 i hope so too fingers crossed (laughs) the girl the skin in its girl is out now buy it borrow it share it talk about it sarah thank you so much tell people where they can find you oh sure i am on instagram just my name sarah cypher I'm on Twitter for now under my business yeah, name, right. Three Penny. <laughs> and then I also have a Substack called The Bird's Eye that's sarahcipher.substack.com. It's so good if you're interested in writing at all. There's so many gems, no matter where you are in the process. I find it really insightful and generous. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for this interview. I, I, it was just a, an absolute pleasure to, to talk with you at this this point in our respective writing lives. Oh my gosh. Wait, let me close with another quote that I wrote down that I feel like I should write like on my wall. Coincidence will sometimes play a role in this story as it does in all lives. <laughs> Perfect. And it feels very well, thank apropos. Thank you so much. 